The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. And for our regular listeners, you know that we are talking about the healthcare of the United States, both domestic and foreign policy. And at some point in the future, we'll get back to private market, uh, free enterprise, healthcare reform, health insurance reform, all those topics that I'd very much like to talk about. But for those of you who have been listening to this radio program turned into a podcast, and some, some of you may have access to that, we're talking about the health of this country. And one of the most important issues that the Supreme Court of the United States is hearing right now, they just finished some of the arguments, is about the right to bear arms, our Second Amendment. And I want this focus this hour to be on that Second Amendment debate, because as so much is moving in this country towards the left, towards chaos, towards division. The Second Amendment is a critical part of our self-defense in many areas, and the right to bear arms is not just about hunting and about target practicing. It's the fundamental right, human right, given by our Creator. And I want to start, before we get into the actual case, which we will do in short order, I want to bring forward one of the great minds of our time, one of the great historians, one of the great politicians, one of the great thinkers, is former Speaker Newt Gingrich. And as a historian, as a politician, as somebody who knows our founding documents inside and out, I'd like to interview him today from some of his previous YouTube presentations. So, Mr. Speaker... Can you give us a little bit of the historical perspective on our governing documents that can lay the foundation for our audience understanding ultimately our discussion that is going to be around the Second Amendment? It's a question of whether we're going to remain a nation that believes that our rights come from our Creator. Remember, our first founding document says we hold these truths to be self-evident. Very important concept. They didn't say we hold this ideology, we hold this philosophy, we hold this political platform. These were people trying to get at what they thought was the truth about human nature, the truth about whether or not you have rights. And what did they say those truths were? First, that we're all created equal. And they meant equality before the law, not equality of outcome, but equality of opportunity. They said, second, that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, why does that matter? This is what American exceptionalism is all about. It's not that we're bigger, stronger, richer. We are the only country in human history which says You personally, every single person in this room, God has given each one of you personally rights which make you sovereign. You, as a citizen, are sovereign. You loan power to the government. The government does not loan power to you. Well, Speaker, that's a great premise to start with, that our rights whether it's free speech or the Second Amendment or any of our other Bill of Rights or the rights that are ingrained in the governing documents that are reinforced with the uh, Bill of Rights. What does it have to do with the Second Amendment in particular? Can you answer that question, please? I would argue it means everything. Notice they said these rights are unalienable. Now, when you get to the... Bill of Rights, the Second Amendment begins in a very interesting way. It talks about the inherent right to bear arms. It doesn't say the Constitution gives you the right. It says the right to bear arms will not be abridged. 
which implies that the founding fathers who wrote the Constitution believed that your right to bear arms came from your creator and was unalienable. It did not come from the government. Mr. Speaker, you are a renowned historian, and you've got some terrific stories and perspectives that we never hear about in school, high school, college, graduate school, anyplace else. And as an originalist in interpreting the Constitution, I think it's really valuable to hear one of the great stories that you like to tell about how the Second Amendment really was a part of the thinking of our founding fathers because of their experience during the Revolutionary War. So would you give the audience, and I want to give you some time to go through this. I may interrupt for a few comments here or there, but it's a great story, and I want to start this hour and this segment dedicated to a full understanding of that historical perspective. So audience, if you would, put yourself back in the mindset of the Revolutionary War period and the Revolutionary War from beginning to its ultimate end to understand how important it was to be able to bear arms if the citizenry was able to bear arms and how we would use that right and why it is ingrained in our governing documents at the end of the day. Speaker, give us that story, please. The British Army set out from Boston to crush the rebellion. Tension had been building for a number of years, and the Americans were being very uppity, and the British Empire was the richest, most powerful empire in the world. But the British Army knew how to crush peasant rebellions. They'd crushed rebellions in Ireland, they'd crushed rebellions in Scotland, they'd crushed rebellions in Wales, they'd crushed rebellions in rural England. And so the professional soldiers who were marching out that day, they, they knew what they were doing. They were going to encounter a bunch of rabble, they were going to scatter them, they were going to seize their weapons, they were going to imprison their leaders, and it would all be over. And then they ran into this problem. They didn't have any peasants to fight, and they didn't have any rabble to fight. They had freestanding Americans who had been training as a militia and who were prepared to fight the British Army toe-to-toe. And by the end of the day, the British Army was running back to Boston, suffering substantial casualties, and in a state of shock. Now, the Founding Fathers knew this history. They had lived this history. And they knew that if they had not had the right to bear arms, they would have been crushed that day. Now, this is an army that is going to get beaten very badly. It gets beaten in September in Brooklyn. It gets beaten in Manhattan. It gets beaten at White Plains. It gets beaten at the Palisades. It gets driven across New Jersey. By December of 1776, six months, five months after the declaration is announced, All these happy-go-lucky people who thought it was going to be easy were gone, and they were down. They shrank from 30,000 to 2,500 men. Those 2,500 men were on the edge of collapse. And Washington proposed the most daring possible strategy. He said, why don't we cross the river in the ice during a snowstorm at night, march nine miles, surprise a professional German unit, uh, defeat them decisively, and reestablish the morale of the revolution. Every single one of his generals said to him, this is too hard. We can't do this. And Washington, who had been fighting as early as 18 or 19 years of age and was very seasoned and had been through some very dangerous moments, had once had two, two horses shot out from under him and four bullet holes in his coat during the French and Indian Wars in one day. Washington said to them, well, you know, if we don't win someplace, this army is going to desert. When the army deserts in another week or two, we will have lost the war. When we lose the war, everybody in this room is going to be hung. So we have nothing to lose. You know, Mr. Speaker, that makes it all come to life. You know, when I was in school, and I think many of our audience just think of history as being places and dates and kind of boring details that we're supposed to Um, know about. Um, The teachers I had never made it come to life as your description is. So I'm anxious to hear your explanation of what happened 
after that announcement that Washington, he had this crazy plan to try to save this potentially lost cause in just a couple of weeks. What, what happened then? So that night, they crossed the river. Now, Washington was a very, very shrewd person. He knew that people are moved as much by words as they are by deeds. And so he had recruited Thomas Paine, who had written a great pamphlet, uh, Common Sense, which was the best explanation of the Declaration of Independence and which had been very widely read in the colonies. And he recruited Paine, and Paine wrote a pamphlet called The Crisis, which begins, These are the times that try men's souls. So as the troops are getting on the ship that night, and they're going over in rowboats, Washington has the officers reading the opening chapter that talks about summer soldiers will have deserted, but that if you stand firm, all eternity will owe you gratitude for having stood up for freedom. So here's this hardy band of 2,500. One-third of them do not have boots. They're marching with their feet wrapped in burlap in the ice and snow and leaving a trail of blood. They cross the river at night. They then discover, to their surprise, they have to cross two ravines. We have to take the cannon down one side, up the other side, in the ice during a snowstorm. And they're running four hours late, four hours late. However, there was one other factor. They're being pushed forward by an enormous wind coming out of the north with an enormous snowstorm. And so they're, they're marching south. And the professional German soldiers conclude that no European army could be out in this kind of weather. And so they don't post their guards. They surprise the Germans. At the cost of one American, they capture 800 professional soldiers. They run like crazy for the river to get across again before the British Army can catch them. They've won a great victory. Within two weeks, 15,000 volunteers show up. Washington takes the new forces, drives the British out of northern New Jersey, and the Revolutionary War has been saved. Now, it doesn't end. Now, these are the people who wrote in the right to bear arms. The right to bear arms is not about hunting. It's not about target practice. The right to bear arms is a political right designed to safeguard freedom so that no government can take away from you the rights which God has given you. And it was written by people who had spent their lifetime fighting the greatest empire in the world. And they knew that if they had not had the right to bear arms, they would have been enslaved. And they did not want us to be enslaved. And that is why they guaranteed us the right to protect ourselves. It is a political right of the deepest importance to the survival of freedom in America. Dude, I want to thank you for a great presentation on the history of the founding fathers and their experiences with the Second Amendment and the need to be able to bear arms. And that ability still needs to stand today for the threats that we are under at home and domestically. It's not something the government allows us to do. It's not a privilege. It is a right by our creator that we are allowed to bear arms for our own self-protection in many ways. So I want to continue this so we can get into the recent Supreme Court uh, discussion and debate that's going on at the end here of 2021. The ruling will likely be in 2022. So thank you for setting the foundation and the expectations and understanding around the need for the Second Amendment. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back to continue our discussion on the value and purpose and the debate around the Second Amendment. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. 
All communications are strictly confidential. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we are talking about the Second Amendment. It's all part of the health care of this country that uh, we're trying to uh, delve into specific topics of uh, international domestic policy. And as many of you probably know, the Supreme Court this year is hearing the case. In fact, they've just finished hearing the case and they will ultimately rule on it before their the end of their session, which would be June 30th, 2022. We don't know how they're going to rule on it, but I want to talk about today the arguments and the issues around that Supreme Court case. It could be absolutely critical to the Second Amendment, the use and the ability for Americans to bear arms, especially as a concealed weapon. Uh, It's a case that um, uh, New York State has got a lot of restrictions and uh, the feeling is that they are unconstitutional, and the Supreme Court has agreed to hear that case. But before we get to that specific case, I want to back up and continue the kind of history lesson that we just heard from uh, former Speaker Newt Gingrich. He gave us the the political outline. I want to now have a a section here that talks about the legislative, uh, excuse me, the the judicial history because there's been a number of cases around the Second Amendment over many, many years. For those of you who even keep up with anything around the Supreme Court decisions, it's usually very narrow decisions that build a framework over many years, decades, sometimes centuries, over what the interpretation is or should be around a particular constitutional issue. So in any particular ruling, they're not going to rule for all the possibilities of all the cases that come up in all the situations, it's usually a very targeted kind of decision. And that's what we would expect to happen in this case around the concealed weapon uh, debate that this New York case uh, brings forward. But that's only the most recent case, the most recent detail of how to structure and interpret the uh, Second Amendment. So I want to Go back in time and look at, uh, I think there's at least five cases before this one that our audience ought to know a little bit about, not the details, not get too bogged down in all the legalities, but an overview of what the five cases have been leading up to this most recent Supreme Court case. So we can see, for those who are worried about the Second Amendment, how there have been cases in the past that have created some structure around the individual rights, and how the interpretation of the Second Amendment has actually changed over time. And the emphasis has moved from the militia, which is in the first part of the uh, Second Amendment, to more about the rights for individuals uh, to bear arms. So let me start off by using a PBS presentation and segment it into its various pieces on what I think is a very good description of that judicial history. As one of the most hotly contested and vaguely worded sentences in history, the full text of the Second Amendment says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So the language of the Second Amendment was geared towards curbing the central government's power over individual political dissenters. But today, the Second Amendment and gun control debate is framed almost exclusively around the right to bear arms, without too much discussion of well-regulated militia. When it comes to questions of constitutional interpretation, there's really only one court that reigns supreme, and that's, well, the Supreme Court. That's a great definition and explanation of where we start. The Supreme Court and the actual language of the Second Amendment, which itself, I think anybody looking at it can try to understand and would properly be confused. What about the militia? What does that mean? What is it about uh, shall not be infringed upon? It, how is this right different from other rights? So let's look at those 
five cases I mentioned earlier that are the backdrop to the legal interpretations, the Supreme Court interpretations of the Second Amendment. So what's the very first case? Case one, United States versus Cruikshank. Well, it took a while before the highest court in the land heard a case on the Second Amendment, 1876 to be precise. And that first case actually involved the KKK and states' rights in the wake of the Civil War. The court ruled that the Second Amendment was only designed to stop the federal government from infringing on citizens' right to own arms as a safeguard against potential tyranny. Therefore, state governments and other private citizens couldn't be charged with taking someone else's right to bear arms away. Okay, so this very first ruling was more a piece of interpretation around the Second Amendment that only applied to the federal government not being able to take away any rights, but they did not opine on states being able to take away rights, and this was something that actually hurt the minority community, the black community, because that was one of the charges against the um, uh, the KKK or other local um, and state militias, if you will, taking away the rights of blacks to uh, carry arms after the Civil War. So give me uh, the next example as we move forward in history. Amendment, and that brings us to case two. Presser versus Illinois. Herman Presser was part of an armed citizen militia of workers in Cook County, Illinois that had ties to the Socialist Labor Party. And he led a group of several hundred armed citizens through the streets in protest in 1879 and was found guilty of violating Illinois' state laws about who could organize a militia. Essentially, the law stated that unless you were a member of an already recognized volunteer militia of the state of Illinois, the federal government, or had special recognition from the governor, then you could not organize an independent militia militia. And Presser disagreed, stating that the Second Amendment protected his group's right to organize a militia to protect themselves from tyranny. But the Supreme Court disagreed, saying that while the federal government could not limit well-regulated militias, the state government could. So armed militias were allowed, but only if the state agreed to it. Okay, so the next case, I understand, involved more the type of regulations that can be placed on citizens and what types of guns they have. And it really came out of sort of the Chicago um, gang um, during Prohibition, the, the gang violence that was there, carrying machine guns and sawed-off shotguns. And so the Supreme Court was asked to rule on, on that aspect of establishing militias, citizen militias, and the types of weapons they can have. So give us a little bit more explanation of this third case. Case three, United States versus Miller. Okay, so we're back in Illinois, specifically Chicago, but the Valentine's Day massacre and similar crimes like it began to shift the cultural conversations around gun ownership more towards what kind of guns it was reasonable for a private citizen who is unaffiliated with any type of law enforcement or military to carry. In 1934, the federal government passed the National Firearms Act, which imposed taxes and restrictions, including new registration laws, on certain kinds of guns like machine guns and sawed-off shotguns. And the ambition here was not only to impose new taxes, but also to limit the use and spread of guns that were frequently used in the commission of gang crimes. The court stuck by the legality of the National Firearms Act, noting that in the absence of any evidence tending to show that possession or use of a sawed-off shotgun has some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia, we cannot say that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear such an instrument, thus reinforcing the federal government ability to regulate particular types of guns. Okay, so we're about to move to a more current time and maybe some of the understanding that our audience has about issues like the Heller decision, although they may not know what that is, they may have heard that term. So I think a key part of going forward here now is for our audience to understand the evolution of the National Rifle Association and so we can better see how the power of the National Rifle Association may have changed both the public and the judicial interpretations of the Second Amendment. So give us a little bit of background on 
the NRA. But when did we start to see the current interpretation of the law as just the right to bear arms? And how did the shift from a well-regulated militia to arguments about individual self-defense occur? Because in 1977, the National Rifle Association experienced a huge shift in their political agenda. Prior to the 1977 convention, known as the Revolt of Cincinnati, the NRA's agenda in the mid-20th century focused heavily on hunting, conservation, and marksmanship. But the new contingent that took over that year's convention was invested in transforming the agenda to center squarely on individual gun ownership and a narrower interpretation of the Second Amendment. From this point forward, the group gains traction as a guns rights lobby organization and moves from a relatively bipartisan hobbyist group to a political powerhouse that makes individual interpretations of the Second Amendment as a key part of its agenda. So now we're up to current times. And those people in our audience who are really big on the Second Amendment and some of the history are now going to hear the where the Heller case, as is mentioned many, many times um, in judicial appointments and the judiciary hearings about pe- judges and Supreme Court uh, judges. How do they feel about the Heller case? Because that was a dramatic change in the history of Supreme Court decisions around the Second Amendment. So. Tell us a little bit more of the details about what the Heller um, uh, decision means and also the McDonald decision that followed soon thereafter. So we're just up to our final two Supreme Court rulings on the Second Amendment from 2008 and 2010. And these ones absolutely 100% have to do with an individual's right to gun ownership. And both of these decisions mark a pretty big shift from the court's previous rulings on the matter. The 2008 ruling in District of Columbia versus Heller found that restrictive gun regulations in the District of Columbia were an infringement on an individual citizen's rights to bear arms for the purposes of lawful self-defense, even outside of any well-regulated militia. And a similar decision in 2010's McDonald versus Chicago found that Second Amendment rights could not or should not be limited by state governments. These two recent decisions focused heavily on the individual right to bear arms and less on the well-regulated militia. Well, even though Heller in 2008 and McDonald in 2010 represent the current status of rulings on the Second Amendment, the fact that they center individual gun ownership for the purposes of self-defense and not the regulation of militias could stem from a couple of different avenues, all focused on stopping the federal government from limiting the Second Amendment and heavily favored the states. However, although Heller did determine that the right to lawful individual gun ownership was protected under this current interpretation of the Second Amendment, the late Justice Antonin Scalia did note that the right to self-defense and individual gun ownership under the Second Amendment is not unlimited. Well, I hope the audience out there listening to this has got a good foundation so that if you're trying to argue the Second Amendment, um, particularly against somebody who wants more gun restrictions, you have a historical uh, background on some of the Supreme Court cases, which lays the foundation now for us to talk about the current Supreme Court case that is the next major step and could be a landmark decision. It will be a landmark decision or likelihood around the new Supreme Court debate and discussion that's ongoing now around a New York case that seems to have arbitrary restrictions on the people's right to bear arms, that the bureaucracy says, yes, you can you can have um, a permit to carry concealed weapons, but you've got to show some special need for why you would want or need that, and they don't give Uh, just anybody who wants a permit, a permit. You have to go above and beyond what seems to be rational, reasonable. And that's what the current Supreme Court case is all about. And that's what I want to delve into. If you'll stay with me, we'll continue with this discussion, a very important discussion on the Second Amendment and the legality for individuals to bear arms. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at firearmliquidationservice at outlook.com 
or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests, appearing on America's Web Radio, are their own, and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. I hope you're following along our discussion today on the Second Amendment. And the reason we're focusing on the Second Amendment issues is because the Supreme Court is ruling on a case. They've heard the arguments. Uh, You can listen to them if you go to YouTube. There will actually be a direct link to all of the uh, presentations. And on this program, we're going to pick out some segments of that so you can actually hear the Supreme Court arguments that very few people even bother to uh, try to listen to. But it's fascinating if you look at the very specific areas that might be uh, more public interest and not just uh, the, the legalese and, and, and lawyer speak that goes on. So, so far this hour, what we've done is we've laid the foundation on what the founding fathers were living through back in the revolution when all of this was put together from their own experiences, the Second Amendment, the Bill of Rights were put together because back then, the main thing that our founding fathers knew were uh, monarchies and dictatorships. There was no democracy to speak of where the rights of the people came from God. They came from a dictator or monarchy or some other ruling czar. And This is a new experiment, so they put in their life experiences to try to restrict the problems and issues that they saw that were not focused on the common man, how the common man lives. So this idea of self-governance, of people getting along and trying to deal with each other, a great part of that was the Second Amendment in our Bill of Rights. And so I want to go on now to this new case, now that we have that history Uh, from Newt Gingrich, and we also then got some of the background on the legal cases in the last segment that lead us up to today's world. The last case that was ruled, the major case was really in 2008, the Heller case, and then the McDonald case was just a couple years later, but it reinforced the issues of the um, Heller case. So as we move forward with Supreme Court decisions, we know that the history of Supreme Court is to sort of peck away at the interpretations either to increase or decrease um, and put limitations or barriers around certain rights that we have when cases come up that would give us a very clear understanding of the problems and issues uh, that might occur in the general public. So it is their way of interpreting the Constitution, but in little bits and pieces. So now we have a landmark case in front of us around whether or not a state can properly regulate almost with an arbitrary bureaucracy on who can have a, uh, a a concealed carry weapon in the state of New York. It seems to be arbitrary if you listen to that part of the argument. The other part of the argument, it is a restriction for the safety of the citizenry, and somebody has to have a very unique and special reason for wanting to get a permit. So let's listen to a CBS um, uh, legal expert, uh, a um, Jessica Levingson, on her interpretation of what's going on with this Supreme Court uh, case that's before us right now. So, Ms. Levinson, how would this ruling affect other state laws or the ability for other states to regulate anything relative to the um, Second Amendment? Well, it will answer a lot of the questions that was left open by that decision you just mentioned. In 2008 was the last time the Supreme Court really made a big Second Amendment decision. It said there is an individual right to keep and bear arms, and that includes having a gun in your home for self-defense. What was left open is, well, what about in public? And that's basically the question here. We have a New York law that says you want a concealed carry permit to carry a handgun in public. 
you can't just say, I need it for self-defense. You have to give a really good reason. And in terms of what effect could it have, there are about six other states that have similar laws, but those states include about 25% of the population. So it could have profound effects for at least a quarter of the population that currently lives under similar restrictions. So the New York law doesn't give me a blanket right to have a, a gun uh, outside my home. I have to provide a very specific reason why uh, I'm different than all my neighbors out there who, who don't have guns or don't want guns, why I need a gun. Um, that, that sounds a little bit restrictive, especially if some bureaucrat makes a decision and doesn't have to give a reason why they deny me when um, – perfectly um, capable. I've been through training. I don't have any uh, felonies. I'm just a good old average citizen, but I want to have a gun to protect uh, myself or my family when I am outside the house. Uh, That's exactly what the New York law says. Basically, if you want a permit and you're going to say that you need that for self-defense, you have to not just say, I think I need it for self-defense. You have to give a specific reason that you can articulate that you face imminent harm. Why do you have to allow New York to have this much discretion? Because they are actually determining, have you given a proper amount of evidence? Have you given a proper reason to say, I really need this concealed carry permit? So that's the answer to why, because they make case-by-case determinations. But isn't that the real issue? Who gets to decide who has a real need and who doesn't? And how much information do I have to provide to some government bureaucracy, some state level bureaucracy when I feel I'm in danger and and they don't think so? Do they have to wait until I get shot before um, I have a problem? Do I have to get attacked? Do I have to be threatened? Um, If I feel I'm endangered, Uh, And I'm a good citizen in good standing in every way. Um, I think that they should be able to give me uh, the permit for uh, carrying a gun. That's the argument that's being made uh, at the Supreme Court right now. So why should it be a problem? Uh, That's a great question. That's largely what this case is about, right? Can New York have this pretty broad concealed carry permit standard where it says, regardless of, to your question, whether or not this is a, you know, densely populated urban area where there might be more crime, you might have, for instance, we might assume you have a better reason for needing that gun for self-defense as opposed to a very sparsely populated rural area. A lot of what this case will tackle is, can New York just say, basically, as to all places, you need this high level of proof that you, in fact, need the gun? Or do you have to kind of be more geographically specific and be more narrow and targeted in your laws? So this case will help us answer who decides. So, Ms. Livingston, These cases are never as simple as they might sound to the general public. The legal details of what needs to be determined uh, can be very simple at times, but also underneath all that is a great deal of complexity. So the question really is, it seems to me, who decides, how do they decide, uh, what are some of the restrictions that are allowed, what are some of the restrictions that are not allowed, what is the current state in uh, New York on what they at least uh, state that they will allow or disallow. I think the case is saying that it seems arbitrary that they apply the same standard in New York City as they would in rural New York. But what are the current standards on the approval process for getting a uh, carry uh, permit? Yeah, so it's probably easier to start with rejected because that's really what the plaintiffs said here. They said, look, we have permits to hunt. We have permits for target practice. We've passed all the safety checks. We've passed all of the other checks here. We're saying that we need these guns for self-defense. In one case, I believe he said that that area was subject to a number of burglaries. In another case, he said that this area is subject to a lot of crime, and that's why I need this this permit to be able to conceal carry uh, guns in public. And New York said, no, that's not enough. So what you're looking at here is 
an even higher threshold. And I think that's what the justices were struggling with. So what would be enough? Something more specific of this is why I in particular need to make sure I can carry a handgun, not just have it in my home, but have it in public because I have a credible threat that, for instance, my business is being targeted and I might be the victim of a burglary or something worse. And therefore, I've given you enough. I think that would certainly pass the threshold. Okay, now I'd like to hear from some of the gun rights organizations, especially those in New York who are part of this case, saying that New York is just too restrictive and it is an unconstitutional restriction on the ability to carry uh, weapons outside the home. We know that Heller, as we've described, allows for the carry of or having of guns in the home but the Supreme Court has never ruled on the right to carry weapons outside the home. And that's what we want to hear about from the gun advocates. So give us that perspective, if you will, of the Supreme Court case and the right to carry weapons, guns outside the home. While the Supreme Court has said the Constitution gives Americans the right to keep a gun at home, gun rights advocates say that should apply outside the home as well. The Second Amendment doesn't end at your doorstep. Tom King is president of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. I think that someone who is not otherwise prohibited should be issued a concealed carry permit without any problems at all. King's group sued New York on behalf of two upstate members who were both denied unlimited concealed carry permits for self-defense because officials said they didn't prove they needed them. They were turned down for no reason at all. Okay, no reason given other than I don't think that you need it. When the Supreme Court recognized an individual right to gun ownership in 2008, the ruling, written by the late Justice Antonin Scalia, acknowledged that the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. Gun control backers argued that limits are needed to protect another right. Chris Brown, president of the advocacy group Brady. It's about the right to live, about our ability as Americans to walk down the street, to leave our homes, to go to church, to go to synagogue, and actually be able not to fear being shot. That's ultimately what's at stake in this case. So many think the Supreme Court will rule favorably since there is sort of a six to three conservative liberal uh, mix on the court today. And may the new justices that were put on by President Trump would be more in favor of Um, uh, Second Amendment rights and expanding those. So let's listen to uh, one uh, part of the argument from a key justice, the the Chief Justice uh, Roberts, asking a question that seems to be fairly obvious on the surface as to why there should be restrictions or ask for a permit um, on something that is part of the Bill of Rights. So let's listen to this actual interchange uh, from the Supreme Court just a couple weeks ago. Just John Roberts asked one of the attorneys arguing in support of the New York law why someone should have to show a special need to exercise a constitutional right. So why do you have to show in this case, convince somebody that you're entitled to exercise your Second Amendment right? You can say that the right is limited in a particular way, just as First Amendment rights are limited. Um, uh, But the idea that you need a license to exercise um, the right, I think, is unusual in the context of the Bill of Rights. So that interchange is just a preview of what I want to do in the last segment. So if you'll stay with me, and you don't have to be a lawyer, you don't have to really be... um, Uh, steeped in the law in any way to understand what's going on in the Supreme Court. I want to have some more interchanges from both the pro and the con side about this ruling and um, and let you anticipate what the final determination of the Supreme Court might be. So I'll keep it interesting. I'll keep it involved. If you'll stay with us, we'll dig into the final aspects of this important landmark Supreme Court case that is being heard and judged as we speak. Stay with us. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army with training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, and Army Career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right, and you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment of America's Web Radio. Today we've been talking about the Second Amendment and getting into all the background and details from the very first understanding of how our founding fathers lived during their time and why the need for the Second Amendment even came up as part of our governing documents. Then we went into the whole description of what's what the judicial history has been, because there have been multiple cases around the Second Amendment, each defining a little bit more aspect of what that language means. And then we heard more about the actual case that's going on. What I want to do now is I want to pull out segments of the actual arguments before the Supreme Court just a few weeks ago and highlight and comment on the importance of the questioning of what the judges may be thinking, why they're asking the questions. And keep in mind, in the Supreme Court, when judges on the bench are asking questions of the presenter, they're not necessarily expecting an answer from the presenter that will clarify a situation for them. Sometimes they do. But probably more than half the time, what they're really doing is speaking to another judge through the, the lawyer making the case uh, before the Supreme Court. In other words, they already know their answer. They know their biases on the, on the bench. They know what they're probably going to rule in. And all they're trying to do is convince another judge to follow their lead when they get around to actually uh, voting on a case or writing up uh, the uh, decision on the case. So I think it's really important, and it might be fascinating for many in this audience to hear the actual Supreme Court discussion that very few people listen to. So I'll just pick and choose a few areas that I think might be important. But before I do that, I want to reset the stage again with a few people um, that are making a, an excellent point and comment about what this case is all about and giving a little bit more information about the case and why there were two cases that are important, the Heller case and the McDonald case. Why did they occur uh, so close to each other? So let me set that stage, and then I'll come back in, and I'll introduce some segments of the actual um, discussion uh, during the Supreme Court hearing. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case involving a New York law that limits a person's ability to carry concealed guns. Observers say the decision in the case could set up a landmark Second Amendment ruling at some point next year. Joining us with reaction is Greg Wallace. He's professor of law at Campbell University, and among his specialties is the Second Amendment. Thanks for joining us. Before we get into the details of the case, I understand this could lead to the first major ruling dealing with the Second Amendment in more than a decade. Yes, it could. The uh... The Supreme Court decided the Heller case back in 2008, and that was the case in which the Supreme Court declared that the Second Amendment protects the individual right to keep and bear arms, not a collective right or a militia right, for the purpose of self-defense. Now, two years later, the court in the McDonald case said that that uh, that the ruling in Heller applies to the states uh, through the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, Heller involved a D.C. 
uh, regulation that, uh, and since the District of Columbia is a federal enclave, the court had to go back in another case and decide whether uh, that uh, uh, Second Amendment right is to be incorporated against the state. Okay, so here's the first clip. I want the audience to listen carefully. This is the lawyer who is representing the um, New York State Gun and uh, Club that wants to allow for uh, more open approval and acceptance of concealed carry in the state of New York, thinking that the law is too restrictive, doesn't give out enough and it, uh, permits, and it seems to be relatively arbitrary in the decisions that they make, make it very hard for people in New York uh, to get a handgun if that's what they want for uh, concealed carry. So this is the lawyer speaking to Chief Justice Roberts. So listen to his case at the very beginning as to um, what this case is all about, spoken from the perspective of the lawyer representing the uh, gun holders. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the text of the Second Amendment enshrines a right not just to keep arms, but to bear them. And the relevant history and tradition exhaustively surveyed by this court in the Heller decision confirm that the text protects an individual right to carry firearms outside the home for purposes of self-defense. Indeed, that history is so clear that New York no longer contests that carrying a handgun outside of the home for purposes of self-defense is constitutionally protected activity. But that concession dooms New York's law, which makes it a crime for a typical law-abiding New Yorker to exercise that constitutional right. I want the listeners of the program who stay with us so far and hearing the actual testimony and comments from the justices on the Supreme Court to pick up on a couple of items here in this first uh, segment. First of all, notice that there is no mention of the militia in his argument about the right to keep and to bear arms. And he goes beyond that. He says the right to bear arms for self-defense. So in this discussion, I think you'll find that the proponents of, um, uh, you know, more permits for gun holders um, doesn't uh, prevent some sort of limitations, some sort of restrictions, and, but they don't want to go too far. They don't want a bureaucrat to turn what they're going to say is a right into a privilege. So I'll let you have your gun, but only if I say so and only if you jump through so many hoops. So let's listen to the follow-up on this around that particular point. New York likens its law to a restriction on weapons in sensitive places. But the difference between a sensitive place law and New York's regime is fundamental. It is the difference between regulating constitutionally protected activity and attempting to convert a fundamental constitutional right into a privilege that can only be enjoined by those who can demonstrate to the satisfaction of a government official that they have an atypical need for the exercise of that right. The next person you'll hear speaking is Justice Thomas. Now, curiously enough, Justice Thomas, for many years after he was put on the court, never asked a single question. It was only until recently when the Supreme Court discussions were offered up by Zoom that he actually started to jump in and and ask questions. Other than um, Chief Justice Roberts, Thomas is the longest-serving uh, justice on the Supreme Court, so maybe that also is the reason why he is a little bit more active. But here is his very pointed question about trying to understand the history and perspective, and is there an analogy to something else that he can ha- lay his hat on? Because he's very much in favor, given some of his past writings, on expanding the rights of individuals to have concealed carry. So let's listen to Justice Thomas and the response to his question. If we analyze this um, and use history, tradition, text of the Second Amendment, we're going to have to do it by analogy. So can you give me a regulation on, in history that is a basis, that would form a basis for legitimate regulation today. If we're going to do it by analogy, what would we analogize it to? What would that look like? 
Well, Your Honor, I suppose if you're going to reason by analogy, then you could, you know, go back and you could find analogous restrictions relatively early in our nation's history about prohibiting certain types of firearms or having firearms in, or any weapon really, in certain sensitive locations. And I think you could reason in that way. You typically have a baseline right to carry for self-defense. And the only historical analogs that really restricted the right of a typical law-abiding citizen to carry for self-defense to the same degree as the New York law here were those laws, very few, typically post-Reconstruction laws, that purported to eliminate any right to carry openly or concealed. And those, court, those, those laws were essentially invalidated by every court that was applying an individual rights view of the Second Amendment. Now let's hear a question from the other side. Justice Breyer is likely to rule against uh, the uh, gun holders and in favor of the state putting restrictions on it because there are a number of justices, and I'll outline this at the very end of this segment, uh, that are against uh, the expansion of gun laws or the loosening of any kind of gun laws. They very much want to eliminate guns entirely as best they can. So let's listen to Justice Breyer and his question that would kind of put a doubt, if you will. He's talking to the other justices like Thomas, who would likely rule in favor of this. But listen to his question and the lawyer's response. How are we supposed to know what we're talking about in terms of what New York does since they say they give, including to one of your clients, they give a license to carry a concealed weapon? So there are concealed weapon licenses all over the place. So so what are we supposed to do Well, Justice Breyer, let me start with the major question, which is, because I think that's actually very straightforwardly answered, which is there's no serious question about the experience of the individual petitioners in this case. And they both sought unrestricted licenses, and they were both denied unrestricted licenses, notwithstanding that they satisfy every other requirement that the state has to be licensed for concealed carry. This next exchange, again, is between Justice Breyer and the lawyer for the um, uh, gun holders. Um, it's interesting just to listen to the back and forth of a justice who really doesn't want guns in the public anyway, and listen to the way he tries to justify his thinking. And again, he's really just trying to convince the other justices uh, of the rightness of his opinion. Uh, he has his license. He can carry it for self-defense uh, under the license to and from work. And as you say, can carry it for hunting, target practice, etc. Concealed, and in your opinion, uh, is he supposed to say you can carry a concealed gun uh, around uh, the streets of the town or outside just for fun? I mean, they are dangerous guns. I mean, so, so what's it supposed to say? It's, it's supposed to be what New York says that they give to lots of applicants, at least in other counties, which is an unrestricted license, which basically means that somebody who has demonstrated to the state that they're of good moral character, that they have all the necessary uh, training, whatever so the 40,000 or 50,000 or 60,000 is not enough. You have to show you have a good moral character. And then if you just would like to uh, uh, carry a concealed weapon, uh, which is a dangerous thing, as I said. You can just do it just, that's what the fourth, that's, in your opinion, that's what you want. No restrictions. Well, it's it, certainly New York is entitled to have laws that say that you can't have weapons in sensitive places, in addition to whatever no, regulations you I'm not saying I got anything to do with And New York has those laws, and we don't challenge those. So, listeners, I hope you got a good perspective on the entire argument and debate around the Second Amendment and the current case that is before the Supreme Court. Now, for gun rights folks that really want to have uh, more openness in terms of permits and allowing uh, concealed carry and protecting yourself and keeping the right to bear arms in the Second Amendment, I think this case is going to come down to looking at the nine justices, in three segments. Clearly, three of the judges are going to be voting for this, given their past history, and that would be Thomas, Gorsuch, and Alito. Then there are three that are definitely not going to vote in favor of gun rights, and that would be Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer, the liberal wing of the party, if you will. 
Now, the three in between, it's going to be interesting to watch them because the three in between would be Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Roberts. And the belief is, based upon the questions and some of their past writings, that at least two of those three will vote in favor of the right to bear arms and to have concealed carry outside of the home. The only question might be Roberts, but the best guess would be that this is going to be a six to three decision, which would be a pretty solid decision in favor of the expansion and the good interpretation, if you will, of the Second Amendment. So stay tuned and watch this. Uh, Keep your eye on it. I hope this was a good background. And we'll be back next week with more important things about what's going on in this country, the health of us domestically and in our foreign policy, and a close look at this Biden administration. See you next week. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.